Now, you're only going to get half a sermon now. I only wave one hand when I'm speaking. Right, okay. Well, after that great start, with my collar corrected, my eyes now able to see a little better. Okay, um, so I want to speak this morning about the joy of knowing God. Who likes that title? Okay, who knows that there's a big difference between knowing about someone and having a personal knowledge and experience of them. So I was listening to some music. My children have introduced me to Spotify, and I was listening to uh, an artist called Seal back from the 90s. I know it's a long time ago. And I thought, after I'd listened to him, I thought, I'm going to learn all about him. So where did I go? Wikipedia, of course. Wikipedia, and Wikipedia told me everything there was to know about him. I learned when he was born, where he was born. I learned about his music career. I learned about his personal life, how many times he'd been married, what the names of his kids were. At the end of reading Wikipedia, I knew everything there was to know about Seal. Who knows that, uh, well, I've been married to Linda now uh, 33 years. That's correct, isn't it? Just checking. God, that was nearly trouble again. Um, So we've been married 33 years, and I know Linda. But I know her in a very different way to how I might know about Seal. You can know about someone... But that's very different from really knowing them. Um, There's an author, writer called J.I. Packer, who wrote a book, Knowing God. And he said this, he said, A little knowledge of God is worth far more than a great deal of knowledge about him. The joy of my salvation for me, which was now 35 years ago, um, the thing that I was amazingly bowled over by was the fact that I, the maker and creator of the universe, wanted to personally know me and that I could personally know him. And it absolutely blew my mind to discover that I could live every day growing in my knowledge and experience of him. The challenge, of course, for us is Are we growing simply in our knowledge about God or our knowledge and experience of him? And of course, many people in this nation sit in churches week in and week out and they are uh, hearing sermons and they're singing songs and they're hearing about God but never really growing in their knowledge of him. I was recently, uh, back in August, doing uh, my diary, my personal diary, work diary, for over the coming 12 months. And uh, actually, you know, I was really struggling to fit everything in over the next 12 months. That's not me saying, oh, what a busy, important person I am, because that's not the truth. Um, But I was, you know, I was getting quite down about how difficult it was to fit all the things that needed to happen across the year into the diary and into the weekends, etc., etc. And then I just stopped at a certain point and I asked myself the question, actually, in the midst of all this busyness, what's really my high goal over these next 12 months? And I just felt the Holy Spirit remind me, 
It's not to do this job and do that job and get this done and get that done. Actually, the, the highest goal I could set my heart on over the next 12 months is to know him more. And out of that, to enjoy him more because he wants us to enjoy him. And as we know him more and as we enjoy him more, we all know that the outworking of that is we glorify him more by radiating that knowledge and experience of him which we're enjoying to others. I want to encourage you this morning to make as your high goal growing in your knowledge and experience of him, even over the next weeks, next months, next 12 months, that you might love him more and glorify him more. And I also want to encourage you not only that that can be your high goal and indeed should be your high goal in the midst of the busyness of life, but I want to suggest to you as well that that's also God's high goal for you. He actually wants you to know him more and more. I want to share with you this morning three evidences of knowing God. Not knowing about him, knowing him. That will allow you to soberly assess how well you know God at the present time. And if you listen carefully, I hope these three points will also inspire you to want to know God more because you'll understand the benefits of knowing him more. And these evidences will also give you insight into how you can get to know God more as well. And some of what I'm going to share with you actually comes from the opening chapters of Packer's book called Knowing God. So I don't want to suggest this is all my own personal revelation, but actually God really spoke to me powerfully through it, and I want to share some of it with you. And there'll be an opportunity, I'm sure, at the end to pray uh, with one another to that end, to the end that we might get to know him and experience more and more of him. So the first evidence of uh, us knowing God is that those who know God have a great desire to know more of God. That's the first evidence. A lot of advertising is based on the fact that if people discover a good thing, they want more of it. So how many of you have seen the Gary Lineker adverts? What does he do? Walker's Crisps? Yeah, it's like Gary Lineker has discovered Walker's Crisps are a good thing. And because he's discovered they're a good thing, he will stop at nothing to get more Walker's Crisps. And we've seen the sort of terrible things he does to people to get more Walker's Crisps. But advertising works because when mankind finds a good thing, he wants more of it. That's the nature of him, of who he is. I'm moving this. Uh, this not, one isn't going to work yet, is it? Definitely not going to work. Okay. Sorry? Yeah. No. Just testing. Okay. <laughs> Got to keep on track. Turn to um, uh, Philippians 3, and we'll read verse 4 to 11. Okay, good. It's going to come on. I want to suggest to you that this, this trait or, or this characteristic of those who know God have a great desire to know more of God 
I want to suggest to you that that's what we're seeing in these scriptures here with Paul. Uh, In Philippians um, 3, verse 4 to 11, it says, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, and as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So Paul <clears throat> Paul has found something, something he describes in verse 8 as being of surpassing worth, better than anything he's ever experienced, something he wants more of, and that something is Christ himself. It's God himself. It's a relational knowing of Christ that is experienced And he describes that knowing as of surpassing worth. Well, surpassing what? Surpassing anything he's known or experienced before. Surpassing the very best of his achievements. Surpassing the very best of his gains. Surpassing the cost factor. Surpassing the pain and suffering factor. Surpassing the loss factor. Surpassing it all. In fact, the word he uses when he describes it is is, it's all like manure compared with knowing Christ. And you've got to understand this. You've got to understand that Paul had been in church for years, hadn't he? He'd been in church for years, learning about God. For years prior to his meeting of God on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, being a Pharisee, his knowledge about God surpassed the vast majority of his fellow Jews. And then in Acts chapter 9, he comes face to face with God on the road to Damascus, and he has a living, experiential encounter with God. And now, now he knows God. And 25 years later, he's writing to the Philippians having been over those 25 years through all sorts of pain, suffering, and loss for his faith in Christ, but having through it all grown deeper and richer in his experience and knowledge of God, and he says, knowing Christ surpasses it all, surpasses everything. And there's still one thing, he says, I have a great desire for. He says, I still have a desire for more of Christ to know him more. And that's the experience of those who really know God, as opposed to those who just know about God. 
Those who really know and experience God find themselves with a great desire and insatiable appetite to know more of God. You know, I've shared with you several times, 35 years ago when I was saved, someone said you're just about to begin the greatest adventure of your life. It was one of the truest things anyone ever said to me when I became a new Christian. But I want to tell you, over those 35 years, right, the greatest part of the adventure has been relationally getting to know him and discover month by month, year by year, more and more of the richness of his love and his character and his person and his ways. And 35 years later, I'm still looking at my diary and saying the best thing I could have this year is to know him more. 35 years later, I'm still preaching to churches. The greatest thing you can do is to know more of God. The adventure is in knowing him. The richness, the life is in knowing him And we have a lifetime to invest every day in getting to discover him more and more. If you've ever walked with someone who knows God through suffering or difficulty, you'll find that invariably they look back on that time of suffering and difficulty, not necessarily as an easy time, but as a time when they got to know God even more. We have a good friend who's walking through some challenges at the moment, being treated for breast cancer. And uh, they send an email regularly to their friends that are praying for them to update them. I'll read you a couple of extracts from uh, the emails we've received over the last few months. Here's one extract. Somehow not having the physical ability to do much beyond be dressed, eat and chat occasionally, uncovered in me an ability to be anxious about anything, from the utterly stupid to more real and possible. I felt truly stripped of what I value as me and my contribution, only to discover that right down there in that place, the Bible spoke to me even more clearly of God's love for me, regardless of my abilities or contribution to life going on around me. This is a precious gift. I'm reading a book about Dr. Paul Brand, who worked with leprosy sufferers in India and the United States, A quote from it stuck out to me last week, and the quote was this, Pleasure and pain are not opposites, but rather mutually dependent parts of the richest experiences in life. I think I can vouch for that in this season. Another extract. It's it's hard not to rush off and attempt to live like normal for just a moment, but I know I will pay for it ending up exhausted. So I'm choosing to inhabit the quiet places instead and see it as a gift at this time, soaking up all I can and discovering new things about myself, my faith, and so many new things about God. Linda read a quote to me, actually, when I was preparing this message can't remember who the quote was from, but it was a good quote. It says, those who are mature do not seek suffering, but they do come to savor it in the light of how beautifully God can use it to bring us into intimacy with himself. When knowing God is the ultimate goal, suffering is not too high a price to pay to obtain it. If we want to assess to what measure we really know God, we have to ask the question, how hungry are we to know more of God? 
Because those who really know God always want more of God because he's so good. If there's little passion and hunger, if there's little passion and hunger to know more of God, then maybe what we're living out of is simply a knowledge about God. Or maybe we used to know and experience God, but we've not done so in any fresh way for some time, and we've retreated into living, simply living out of what we know about God. Wherever we're at with our hunger and appetite for God, we have this hope this morning. Appetite can be stimulated. Psalm 34 verse 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. God wants you to know him more, and he wants you to keep company with him, and he wants to keep company with you. He wants you to taste and experience his company and his goodness. God constantly says through the scriptures, he'll be found, he'll be known by those who seek him. If you've lost your appetite and passion for God, if you've plateaued in your knowledge and experience of God, I want to encourage you this morning, do not settle with that. Take a step towards God. Open your heart. Soften your heart. Raise your expectation. Determine you're going to spend more time with him. Determine you're going to spend more time in his company. Invest into reading more of his word with him. Praying more with him. Walking and talking more with him. Or if you're a younger person, just hanging out more with him. Because he wants to hang out with you. But whatever you do, don't settle with what you have or don't have. Reach out for a fresh taste and experience of God or your real first taste and experience of God if you've not known him before. Because here's the prize. In knowing and experiencing God, you'll experience something of such surpassing worth, pleasure, and joy that all the stuff that ends up wrongly distracting and consuming us and our lives will pale into insignificance. And not only will we have the joy and the pleasure of knowing him, we'll be filled with a glorious appetite to know and experience him more because those who really know God always have a great desire to know more of him. The second point I want to make, second characteristic of those who know God is those who know God have great energy for God. In Daniel chapter 11, Daniel has a vision from God, a vision of the future, a vision of the world and its corruption and its anti-God stand. And in the middle of all that ungodliness, chapter 11, verse 32 says this in the RSV. It says, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. That's a great verse. About eight years ago, we started a a year team uh, program called the Daniel Challenge. And uh, Clive was right at the heart of uh, that uh, being brought about. And and Clive really got hold of this verse from God. And we're still running that. We've got eight people, an Italian, uh, two Polish, a German, and four from the UK on it this year. It's still going. And that's the verse we teach them. Those people who really know God, you know what? They stand firm for God. They go do something for God. They take action for God. People who really know God are energized about God. 
are passionate about God. In the midst of ungodliness and dishonor of God, they're energized to stand firm and take action. And if you read the book of Daniel, you'll discover that Daniel and his friends, they did just that. In the midst of the Babylonian empire and culture that was dishonoring God, they stood firm. They resisted the food of the culture. They took action when they were told to worship an image of gold. You know what the action they took was? They said, no. They refused. They ended up in a fiery furnace as a result. And when Daniel was told not to pray, he took some action. Hey, he went up to his room, opened his window for everyone to see, and prayed three times a day. And that got him in the lion's den. In the midst of ungodliness and dishonor of God, people who really know God can't be passive, can't be half-hearted, can't be lukewarm. People who really know God have great energy for God, an energy that causes them to stand firm, to take action, to do something, to serve him in some way, to speak for him in some way, to confront for him in some way, and to resist ungodliness in some way. Why does knowing God give you great energy at those points? Because when you know who God is and what he's really like, everything in you cries out, he deserves better. Everything in you cries out in the midst of dishonor, in the midst of God not being known. Everything in you cries out. He deserves to be honored, respected, worshipped, served, adored, obeyed, loved, and in every way lifted up. And when you know who he is and the price he's paid for you, you're not concerned with sacrificially paying a cost by giving your time to come to a prayer meeting by giving your money and being faithful with your tithe, by giving your service or sacrificing your reputation and discomfort, because any cost you pay pales into insignificance compared with the cost he's paid for you and compared with the riches you gain as a result of serving him. Let me read to you a couple of illustrations people who stood firm and took action. At age, Ken, at age 26, Ken Elzinger joined the faculty of the University of Virginia, and after a colleague warned him that being explicit about his Christian faith would hinder his career, Elzinger was stunned to see a flyer with his face on it placed at a prominent campus location, a campus ministry he'd agreed to speak at, had posted it to advertise the talk he'd agreed to to give. A relatively new believer, Elzinger worried, what would fellow professors think? Would they think less of him? Might this harm his career chances? He experienced a dark night of the soul, returning to campus and secretly taking the posters down. But the next morning, Elzinger put the posters back up. After hours of soul-searching, he concluded that his life was not about career ambition, but about faithful discipleship, and that being private about his faith was not an option. In the four decades since, Elzinger has been named Professor of the Year multiple times and is still a speaker in high demand. He will be the first to say that serving only one master has been liberating. Why? Because pleasing an audience of one makes us less anxious. 
less sensitive to criticism and more courageous. Because in doing so, we become more secure and compete less for our honor and more for his honor. Michael Ramsden, a co-worker with Rabbi Zacharias, shared the following true story about a minister from Iran. As the minister was driving with his wife, they stopped in a small Iranian village to purchase some water, and before entering, the minister noticed a man holding a machine gun and leaning against the wall outside the store. The minister's wife looked at the man's face and gun and then put a Bible in her husband's hand and said, give that man this Bible. Her husband looked at the man, his menacing beard and his machine gun, and he replied, I don't think so. But she persisted, I'm serious, give it to him. Please give him the Bible. Trying to avoid the issue, the husband said, okay, I'll pray about it. (laughs) He went into the shop, purchased the water, climbed back into the car and started to drive away. His wife looked at him and said, I guess you didn't give him the Bible, did you? Looking straight ahead, he replied, no. I prayed about it and it wasn't the right thing to do. She quietly said, you should have given him that Bible. And then she bowed her head and started praying. And at that point, he turned around and told his wife, fine. If you want me to die, I will. When the minister returned to the store, the man with the machine gun was still standing against the wall. When the minister approached him and placed the Bible in his hand, placed the Bible in his hand. And when the man opened it and saw it was a Bible, he started to cry. I don't live here, he said. I had to walk for three days in order to get to this village. But three days ago, an angel appeared to me and told me to walk to this village and wait until someone had given me the book of life. Thank you for giving me this book. The minister became a courageous witness for Christ. But eventually, along with many other co-workers in the Iranian church, he was martyred for his faith. Those who know their God, stand firm and take action. You know, I have a a lot of passion and enthusiasm for things, for our church at at Thames Valley. Um, (laughs) If I drive home and the building's gone, I know where to look. Um, I, I have a lot of passion, zeal, energy, enthusiasm for our church, for its growth, for what the work it's doing. I have a great passion for the Northeast, for your church and other churches that we are involved with over the Northeast. And many people could look at me and say, well, you know what, that mind Dunkley, he's driven. He's just got a desire to achieve or he's, he, he, you know, he, he's drawing his value from it or he's got an overdeveloped sense of responsibility or he's a workaholic. And hey, you know what, <laughs> some of those things might be true. They could even all be partly true. But I, right deep down inside, I have a dream and a vision for our church and for the Northeast. I just want our churches to be filled with people that have come to know Christ and what he's done for them. My heart still breaks that so few people have heard the gospel in Newcastle and in Stockton and in Middlesbrough. And so few people are living in this glorious experience of being known by him and knowing him and walk in life and death and eternity with him.
It breaks my heart to see how few people know that. And there is an overwhelming fuel in me for people to know who God is, what he's like and what he's done. And many, much of the action that I'm taking may have other things in it. Who knows? I might only finally know when I get to heaven, but I do know this. 35 years ago, I came to know God, and that knowledge of God has been driving me to stand firm, to take action, to preach God's word, to communicate the gospel, to encourage the saints every day for 35 years since. And by the grace of God, it'll continue every day to the last day of my life. Those who know God have great energy for God. What are your energy levels like for God? How do they compare with your energy levels for other things in your lives? What are your energy levels like for righteousness and holiness, for getting up in the morning and getting time with God? What are your energy levels like for being bold and standing up for God, for taking a risk and speaking out for God? What are your energy levels like when it comes to sacrificially giving your finances, sacrificially giving your time, What are your energy levels like when it comes to serving God's people, serving God's work, serving God's church? What are your energy levels like to pray? If there is in us little energy to take action for God in prayer, with finances, with time, with serving, with witness, this is a sure sign that something's lacking in our knowledge of God. If you're lacking spiritual energy, here's my encouragement, don't settle with it. You can re-energize, God can re-energize you, and God wants to re-energize you. Jesus said in John 4, 14, if we come to him, he would give us water that would well up to become a spring, a, a fountain of eternal life and energy. And you know what? Whenever, whenever I'm lacking spiritual zeal, passion, and energy, Linda always has the same answer. She says this to me. She says, get more time with God. Spend more time in the Scriptures. Get more time with God. Do you know why she does that? Because she knows every time I encounter God, every time I get to see him afresh and get to know a bit more of him, the energy levels to stand firm and to take action are going to go up. Wherever your energy levels are today, I want to encourage you. God wants to fill you with energy and passion for him. But the key to it is investing into your relationship with him and getting to know him more. Amen? The third and final point for this morning is that those who know God, they have great thoughts about God. If you read the book of Daniel, you'll see that this man who knew God had a, had a great view of God. Here are just a few of the thoughts that Daniel expresses about God in his prayers in chapter 2 and chapter 9. It's not in order, they're sort of random sentences pulled out, but he says, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. He says, all wisdom and power belong to God. He says, God changes the times and the seasons. God sets up kings and disposes them. God is the one that gives all wisdom. God knows what lies in darkness and only light dwells in God. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands, you alone are righteous. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. The Lord our God is righteous in everything 
he does. Daniel knew God, and therefore he knew God's greatness, his awesomeness, his majesty, his power, his wisdom, his strength, and the greatness of God's love, mercy, and forgiveness. And his knowledge and view of God were therefore reflected in the great thoughts he had about God that come through when he prayed. How great are your thoughts about God? How big is your view of God when you face a challenge, a disappointment? How great are your thoughts about God when you face an impossibility, when you face a fear, an insecurity? How great is your, are your thoughts about God when you or your family hits pain or illness or suffering? How great are your thoughts about God when you watch the news and see the overwhelming challenges in the world? I want to confess to you, my thoughts about God are not always as great as they should be. You know, sometimes I watch the news, and you know how the news repeats itself. I, I, sometimes I can't watch the news more than once a day. I don't know if anyone else. But sometimes I put my head in my hands as I watch the news, at the pain and the suffering and the foolishness of man, and I... I do genuinely have times when I, I just get discouraged and despair with what's going on in the world. When I look at the church and I hear of what Christians are saying and doing and how they're living their lives and how they're changing what the Bible says and, and how the, the, the culture of this world and this society is totally changing their values, God, does that depress me? <laughs> Sometimes it really does discourage me at times. I despair. I think this is the church. I keep saying to myself, God, if the salt loses its saltiness, then aren't we in trouble? A few months back, (coughs) I had just a couple of personal disappointments over the weekend. They were really big personal disappointments, really big things that happened. I was very disappointed I don't think I had one great thought about God on the Saturday. <laughs> you understand? These disappointments were just so overwhelming me, and I, I didn't, you know, I hardly spoke to Linda. Linda was nothing to do with them, but I, I, you know, I was just overwhelmed with the disappointments and discouragements. But hey, you know what? That's where we get stuck. We get stuck in hopelessness and in pain and in disappointment and overwhelmed with unbelief in the things that are going on around us until we get a view of God that is bigger than those challenges. Fortunately, I don't stay there. That's why I like to read my Bible, because that gives me a great view of God, because that tells me what God really is like and where he sits and the power and authority he ultimately has and how he's going to work everything to one end, conforming it with his purpose and will. Let me read you a a testimony of a couple who had some great thoughts about God. Years ago, Dave Phillips and his wife, Lynn, had a talk about the callings they felt God was stirring in them. And they discussed what they were most passionate about, and they agreed that bringing relief to suffering children and reaching the next generation with the gospel were at the top of the list. The thought of starting a relief agency was considered, but Dave's response was, but that would mean I would have to talk in front of people. 
By nature, Dave is a very quiet, behind-the-scenes man. And, but after much prayer, Dave set aside his fears, and he and Lynn started the Children's Hunger Fund out of their garage. And six weeks later, that Children's Hunger Fund was launched, and in January of 1992, he received a phone call from the director of a cancer treatment center in Honduras, asking if there was any way he could obtain a certain drug for seven children who would die without it. Dave wrote down the name of the drug, and he told the director he had absolutely no idea where to get this type of drug. And then they prayed over the phone together, because they believed God was great. They had great thoughts about God and great thoughts about what he could do. And they prayed over the phone together, and they asked God to provide. And as he put down the phone and let go of the receiver, the phone rang immediately again. It was a pharmaceutical company in New Jersey asking Dave if he would have any use for 48,000 vials of the exact drug. Not only did they offer him $8 million worth of this drug, but they told him they would airlift it into any place in the world. And Dave would later learn that the company was one of only two that manufactured this drug in the United States. And within 48 hours, Dave had the drug sent to the treatment center in Honduras and to 20 other locations as well. It was then he believed that his great work, God, was about a great work, validating his call and ministry. Year after year, God continues to provide supernaturally. Today, they have distributed more than $950 million in food and other relief to more than 10 million kids in 70 countries and 32 states couple that had great thoughts about God and what he could do. Listen, the size of God in our heads, our hearts, our prayers, and our thoughts, especially in times of pressure and difficulty, reveals how much or how little we really know God. But here's an encouragement. You can't think great thoughts about God that are bigger than the reality of God's greatness. Did you know that? The greatest thought that any of us in this room could possibly have about God is still not great enough or informed enough to do his greatness justice. So God's like the universe. You understand the universe, don't you? You understand light will go around the world, the earth, uh, six times in one second. That's pretty fast. You understand you have to travel 100,000 years at that speed to get to the edge of our galaxy, the Milky Way. And you understand our galaxy is one of billions of galaxies. In the universe, you get all that. That's it. So think in your mind how big the universe is. You know what? Whatever you're thinking, it's bigger. Think again. It's bigger than that as well. Do you understand the universe reflects the glory and the nature of God and his greatness? However great you think God is, you will never, it will never do justice. He's always bigger. He's always greater. When you and I have small or mediocre thoughts about God, we shouldn't believe them. We should think our God's, we shouldn't think our God's only that big. At that point, we should be confidently full of unbelief, doubt, and skepticism towards such thoughts. Those who know God have great thoughts about God. If you have small thoughts about God, 
Don't settle with a distortion of such magnitude. Acquaint yourself with the reality of who God is by investing yourself in getting to know him. Because the more you get to know him, the greater and more accurate our thoughts of him will be. Amen? So in summary, there is great joy in getting to know God. But we don't want to just live knowing about God or growing in our knowledge about him. We want to grow in our knowledge of him. Those who know God have a great desire for more of God. What's your desire for God like? Those who know God have great energy for God to stand firm and take action. What are your energy levels for God like? Those who know God have great thoughts about God. How great are your thoughts about God? Your passion for God, your energy levels to take action for God, and your view of God and how great he is in the midst of all of your challenges can all come up even today if we invest ourselves in a fresh way and give ourselves, like Paul did, to know him more and more of this great resurrected Christ that we've come to believe in. Amen? Amen. God bless you.